are in the middle of a series that we are calling Desire, which if you want to boil it down, is really just a series about the heart and asking questions like why we do what we do, how are we wired, what makes us tick, importantly, how do we change, how does that even happen, and last week, Pastor Dave talked about every person's favorite topic, idols, our heart and idolatry, and idolatry is what happens when the good gifts of God, when we take those good gifts like money or sex or food or relationships or recreation or sports, when we take the good gifts of God and make them more important than God himself, when we derive our ultimate happiness by what happens on a Saturday afternoon in Dope Campbell Stadium versus our eternal relationship with the Father could be a good indication of an idol lurking somewhere about. And so this morning, James 4 is going to tell us what happens when the desires of our heart are not tethered to God's truth and God's word. Guys, there is a a cultural myth, but it's pretty prevalent, which basically says uh, what you do in private is your business. And as, if you, if whatever you want to pursue as your personal ethic, personal choices, remember there's as many truths as there are people, um, everybody has to create their own life, what you do in private really doesn't have any public consequence. Um, it doesn't hurt anybody, why should you care what I do in private or in the bedroom or whatever in my own free time, it's not hurting anybody. And let me just tell you, James chapter 4 is going to drive a stake right into the middle of that sort of thinking. Because, as we'll see, when the desires of our hearts are untethered to God and his truth, that leads to conflict in interpersonal relationships. And the, and the consequence is always relational, collateral damage. So that's what we're going to talk about this morning is conflict. I don't need to tell you that for a, for, a, for a culture that's so steeped in conflict, we love to talk about conflict. Okay? Go to Barnes & Noble's, one of the few print and paper bookstores left in the world. All sorts of books, is there not? Marital conflict, work conflict, parenting conflict, books, resources, DVD series, conflict management seminars. How many of you have been asked to go through sensitivity training in your jobs, reconciliation workshops? For goodness sake, and all due respect to... Eric and John Rudolph and others who are lawyers in here, we have a whole legal system represented in the civil courts devoted to the resolution of what? Conflict. Just about every form of conflict can you imagine? And just a simple question for us, simple question for us this morning. Have all of these resources decreased the incidences of conflict in our culture, have they? It's a rhetorical question. I think it's no, okay? Are we any less contentious as a society? No. And James this morning is going to tell us why. And why the monitoring of conflict in your heart and in my heart and in my life and in your life is so important. So you can turn to James chapter 4. And as you're turning there, just a couple of disclaimers. Just understand, this, is, this sermon is not primarily about how to resolve conflict, although that's a very important issue. It's not a seminar with three easy application steps that you can take to implement with your spouse or your teenager. Um, those would require 
hundreds of Sundays, would they not? Um, hopefully there's some application points for you, but that's not primarily what this is. I reckon, let me say this, I recognize that many of you are involved in complex, conflictual situations that are, that are increasingly difficult, that require wisdom and careful application of God's word and care from your church leaders and other Christians. Um, there are some situations where conflict, um, to be honest, is not to be avoided. It's to be embraced if it's for the right things, in the right spirit, for the right reasons. But to parcel out all those situations is not our task this morning, as important as those things are. Rather, we are going to look at conflict as a diagnostic of our hearts, as a gauge so to speak, of what's going on internally for us in conflict. Because the way we process and engage conflict is going to say something for us very, very important about where we are spiritually. The title of this message is Desires Exposed, Internal, External, and Eternal. There's three points to this sermon, three very simple points, and it's built around this thesis, okay? you remember nothing else. When pastors say that, by the way, that they're really lying. They want you to remember everything. But let me go ahead and say it now. Three, three, three points. Remember this thing. Internal conflicts manifest themselves in external problems that have eternal consequences. Let me say that one more time. Internal conflicts manifest themselves in external problems that have eternal consequences. We need the Lord's help to bite that off, so let's pray. Lord Jesus, as we open your word this morning, um, we're all cognizant that our lives, all of our lives on some level are filled with conflict or touch on conflict, whether it's marriages or parenting or the workplace or our best friend or people in our fellowship group or other Christians, um, our neighbors, And so we need your grace to see what James would have us see this morning, what your word, your Holy Spirit would have us see. So Holy Spirit, have your way this morning and let us begin and end by looking at our hearts and then asking you, Lord Jesus Christ, to come and pour out your grace for us, a conflicted people. So Lord, we we need your help. We ask that you would provide it. In your son's name we pray, amen. Guys, internal conflicts, verse one of James. And we're gonna read through this in little, bit of, little bitty chunks um, this morning, not all at one time. We'll cover five or six verses. James begins by asking us a question that has immense spiritual implications for all of us. And how we answer this question, how you answer this question, will tell you, it will tell me something very important about the way that we interpret the conflict that is present in our lives and where it comes from. Because if we get the diagnosis wrong, all the doctors in here will say amen, the solution will be all wrong. We'll we'll come at conflict in totally the wrong way if we don't understand where conflict comes from. And James asks this question, look at verse 1a. What, he asks, causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? That's the question. What causes quarrels? What causes fights among you? We asked our kids this question at the dinner table the other night. 
I'll tell you in just a minute how they answered. How would you answer? What causes the conflict in your life? Some would look at our political context and the political conflict that we have and say it's because of poverty or education or immigration or healthcare or social injustice or abuse of the environment. Some of you might look at your relational conflicts and say that, that they stem from the fact that maybe you're not being appreciated or there's a lack of tolerance or, or you have low self-esteem. Others might look to the spiritual conflicts of their life and the way that people are treating them and say, the church has hurt me, leaders have hurt me, someone has treated me poorly. This is the source of the conflicts in my life. And what's interesting, Four Oaks, about all of these perspectives on what causes conflicts is that they tend to locate conflict in some place out there. Any problems that I'm having internally depression, anger, lust, discouragement, they're all a product of all of the conflict that surrounds me externally. And guys, in fact, our whole therapeutic culture is organized around this premise, by the way. If I can just fix, and many of us say this, I say this, if I can just fix the external conflicts in my life, I will be happy. God, if you can just fix the conflicts in my marriage and my job and in the country and the world and politics and kids and my finances, then I'm going to be good. And so, Forex, I've got good news and I've got bad news for you this morning. The bad news is that's not what James says. But the good news is that's not what James says, okay? Listen to the way he answers this question in verse 1. What causes quarrels and fights among you? This is what he says. Is it not this? that your passions are at war within you. Or as our kids were perceptive enough to say the other night when I asked them these questions, Dad, fights happen because people want stuff. Okay, that, that was their answer, and actually it was very profound. We think external conflicts yield internal problems. And James says, oh, no, 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 no. It's exactly the opposite. Internal conflicts yield external problems. James would say the biggest problem you and I have are not the external circumstances of the world, but the internal conflicts of the heart. Folks, it's a very difficult thing when you're in the middle of a conflict to say, the problems, sweetheart, you and I are having right now are not located out there or in you, in you. The biggest problem I have in our conflict is right here. Is that a hard thing to say? It's a hard thing to say. And listen to the way James describes this internal conflict that he says is the source of every conflict. He, use, he uses these words to describe our internal conflict as passions are at war. And so passions, by that he means those sinful self-indulgent, self-oriented impulses that put yourself at the center of any conflict that you're in. And in conflict, it can show, it can show up in a, in, a, in a variety of ways. It can show up in your inflexibility in wanting to have your own way. It can show up in the way that you maneuver or manipulate for position or criticize the other person to make yourself look good or throwing out hurtful words to get even. And, and James says, that's right where it starts. It's the passions. And what are these passions doing? He tells us 
He says they are at war within you. And understand what James is talking about here is not that all of us are endowed with a, you know, with, with a good angel and a bad angel in our soul, and each is perched on one shoulder, and one's saying, do this, and the other is saying, no, 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 do this. That's not what he's talking about. James is much more explicit. He said these passions, these untethered desires that use yourself as the central point for all things, these things are running amok in your heart and they're making war on your soul. Because people who, and you may have heard me say this before, people who are experiencing marital problems often say they have what kind of problems? Number one complaint, communication problems. And, and, and that's really, I don't think, based upon my experience in pastoral counseling, really true. They usually don't have communication problems. In fact, most couples can communicate just fine and are very clear about what they have a problem with. Because they don't have communication problems primarily. Married couples have problems with warring passions and desires. I would boil 95% of marriage counseling down to this. Each partner saying, there is something that I am wanting but I am not getting. And fill in the blank. I need more time. I need more sex. I need more affirmation, support, space, encouragement, autonomy, freedom. You name it. It can be boiled down to that. And the thing that you want, Four Oaks, in any given conflict, doesn't matter what kind of conflict, will say something about your heart. So let me address some words to the husband, because that just seems like the right thing to do after being on vacation. All right, so husbands, um, maybe you've been fighting with your wife about wanting more time for yourself, okay? Um, and there's nothing wrong with time for yourself. It's an important part of renewal and rest and fellowship. But you're getting pushback from your wife about this, and so the way that you frame this conflict for yourself and of course for your fellowship group and all the men in your Bible study is to say that your wife is not, um, if it wasn't for your wife being so controlling, if it wasn't for your wife being so fearful and mistrusting and non-supportive, if it wasn't for that, you wouldn't be having a conflict at all. James, though, would say, husbands, before you go down that road, let me ask you a question. Husbands, what is it that you really want? What is the nature of the desires that are warring within you? Is your request for more time, is it, is it about rest? Is it about renewal? Um, is it about um, spiritual vitality so that you can serve your wife and your kids and your church better? Or husbands, is it really about autonomy? and individuality, and the freedom to do whatever it is that you want, whenever you want, with whomever you want. Right, husbands? You see, our desires which fuel our conflicts show us something about our hearts. Problem is not out there primarily. The problem is in here. Teenagers, adolescents. I know you guys just have been having just a bundle of fun this summer with Pastor Rob and his trusty sidekick, Ferg. Um, teenagers, maybe you've been arguing with your parents about your technology 
habits, your iPhone and your social media and your Instagram account, nothing wrong with those things in and of themselves. Um, actually, I think there's a whole lot wrong with Instagram, but that's another sermon, okay, parents? But you seem to think if mom and dad would just lay off, if they would just lighten up, if they would give you plenty of rope, then you would be totally free to use your social media as a educational tool to spread good news and hope to the world, okay? Teenagers, let me ask you, what is it that you really want? Because you don't get, start getting to the heart of the matter until you say, why? Could it be that what you really want and what is really driving you is unaccountable time, unhindered freedom, ability to make choices with no consequences? I don't know. But here's what James would say. When we address conflict in our lives in order to purposefully, spiritually, in a gospel-centered sort of way, we have to look first at what it is that we really want. And here's the hard part, to be brutally honest about it. To be brutally honest about it. This has to be Four Oaks the first step. Because when you put your finger on what it is that you want, and understand, there's a lot of things that we want are great things. They're good things. We may want them in the wrong way. We may want them for selfish reasons. But we have to make sure that what we want is tethered to the word of God and God's truth. But so often we deceive ourselves and we have to ask what it is that we want. Because then we will find out the root of what it is that's driving us. And, what, and whether what's driving us is really uh, the aroma of Christ, the wisdom of heaven, or whether it's really passions waging war, as James says, in our soul. What do you want? Now, when we look internally, and this is why this is important, it helps us make sense in our lives and in our conflict about what's going on externally. Because internal problems manifest themselves in external behaviors. Look back at James in verse 2. He says, you desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. James tells us that there is a natural progression of what happens in our relationships when our internal passions or our self-orientations have their way. He says, when we desire and covet and don't get, remember what our kids said? Um, fights happen when people want stuff. Okay? Fights happen when people want stuff, and you don't get it. He says violence is the result, relational violence. How many times parents, husbands, coworkers, spouses, can you go back fundamentally, if you're honest, and you will know, really at the heart of that conflict, um, the thing that was causing relational violence was really just two self-oriented people wanting what they want, when they want it, and how they want it. And it's interesting that James uses the word murder here. And you may say, that's, that's awfully extreme. And we would want to say, one, he certainly uses this for emphasis, okay? Because a lot of times the conflicts that we're experiencing with others are indeed great examples of relational violence. But, but, but there's part of this that's not hyperbole. Where does all murder, killing, and war start? 
And that's a really important question. You can make disastrous political calculations if you don't answer this correctly because war is not happened because of some injustice out there. It happens because of some violence in the heart right here. Because right now, if you get on Fox News, wherever, you get your news, we have another major brouhaha going down in the Middle East, do we not? Between the Israelis and the Arabs and the Gaza Strip and the West Bank and the Palestinians. And this has been going on for hundreds, if not thousands of years, ostensibly, and I say ostensibly, over a piece of land. And, and, and it's so obvious why this is never going to be resolved at the peace table. The reason isn't because they can't figure out how to give the Palestinians a homeland. They can figure that out. They figured that out how to do that in 1993 when Yasser Arafat and the Palestinians rejected that proposal. What has expressed itself as an external problem in the Middle East began with an internal conflict. A group of people and nations decided we don't like the, the fact that there is another race and ethnicity of people, the Jews. We don't want them alive. We want to exterminate them. We wish they didn't exist. We want to just ground them into the Mediterranean Sea, never to be seen again. Which is why there will always be fighting and coveting and murder because this is not primarily a conflict with external realities, although it is that. It's a conflict of the heart. William Faulkner said this, and this is really good. The central human conflict is not a piece of land. And here's what Faulkner said. The central human conflict is the human heart in conflict with itself. And until we wrap our brains around that, not only will we not make progress in world peace, you're not going to make progress in relational peace with the people that God has surrounded you, you with. Let me, do, let me make this more personal. That's Middle East, and that's all way out there. Let's, let's make this much more personal. Let me tell you why it's so important to understand, for Oaks, how internal conflict yields external problems. I know that many of you experience deep conflict and angst over your financial situations. Conflicts about who works, how much money you need, what you spend it on, who controls it, how you spend it. Um, these are all the external flashpoints and problems that you're facing, the conflicts that you're confronted with. And as such, we typically focus on what? External solutions. This is about our budget. This is about increasing our income. This is about having to move or mom goes back to work or pulling the kids out of private school or taking a Dave Ramsey course. And by the way, all those things have their place. However, all of these things can fail to touch on the internal battle that's waging in each person, which is this. What is it that you want? What's driving all of this? And as we start asking those questions about what it is that we want, we get in tune to the external realities of our life because our hearts and our desires are exposed. And these financial conversations, just as an example, maybe what's really driving all these conflicts is the internal war for stuff, for materialism, for covetousness. Did I say that right? Greed, um, ease, 
comfort, a certain level of living. I don't know what you'll find when you start asking those questions, but I do know this, internal conflict results in external problems. And I said this is not a conflict resolution seminar. How many, but, but honestly, however, many of you are probably asking, Pastor Paul, where do I even start? And I would say, just as a small point of application, start with a prayerful plea for heart exposure and heart change. Look at verse 3. You do not have, James says, because you do not ask. And you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. See, the, the people in, in, here's what's scary about this. The people in the church that James is writing to were, were praying. They were praying about the conflict in their life, but they weren't praying about the right things. Your first prayer, as hard as it is, is to say, God, show me the desires of my heart. Show me what it is that I really want. And then God, change me. As using our current financial example, they were, proverbially speaking, praying for more money or for more stuff or for quick solutions to their financial situation. And God says, no, 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 no. To give you those things would only serve to fuel the internal war within you. What you really need, church, is for me to change your heart. Folks, we may be praying for relief from the conflict in our lives. I know many of you are. But God doesn't give it oftentimes because we are asking for the wrong things, for the wrong reasons. We want God to take the conflict away oftentimes so that we'll have comfort and ease and things will go back. And God says, no, no. I want to get at the root of this thing. I want to, I want to expose your heart, not to leave you in guilt and shame, but I want to, to show you your heart so that you'll run to me for grace, so that you'll find mercy in your time of need, so that I can go to work and change your heart. And I'm not going to necessarily fix all the conflicts in your life, but I am going to work on you. And by his grace, I'll work on your spouse. And by, by my grace, I will work on your children. But it has to start by us understanding that internal conflicts fuel external problems. And finally, this is our last point. All of these things have eternal consequences. All right, let's look at verses 4 and 5. James says this, You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell within us? Brooks, I want to close the loop on what I said at the beginning of the sermon for why it's so important to, to understand the functional place of conflict in our hearts. And the way James comes about this is he talks about worldliness. And on the, on the surface, we may ask or, or suppose that those two don't seem to be related. Worldliness and conflict don't seem to go together. But James says it very much is. And he says a few things here, and I want to relate it back 
to what we've been talking about. And let me talk about worldliness just for a minute, and then I'm going to talk about what its connection is to conflict. Because the most dreadful pronouncement that ever could be made by anyone against anyone is by God himself declaring that someone else is his enemy. I want you to think about that for a second. Apart from Christ, that's what we are, by the way, enemies of the cross. And on that last day, the, the sheep and the goats will be divided up according to those who know and profess and love Jesus Christ and those who don't know him. They will be the enemies of God. That's the most terrible pronouncement that could ever be made. And it's the most terrible kind of condition to be in. It's what the text calls enmity with God. Literally, violently opposed. That's not cute cultural postmodern language and that will get you fired and disbarred and a whole host of other things but what's here's what james is driving at what's one way of knowing if someone is an enemy of god and james says well you know because they have an intimate friendship with the world and in friendship here gets at the idea of emotional bonding Falling in love, settled affection, strong attraction. And James says when there is a deep abiding friendship and communion with the world, the result is what the Bible calls worldliness. Literally, having fallen in love with the world. And, here, and here's, this is important to understand. I'm going to start to drill down. The presence of worldliness is a diagnostic in our hearts. And here's a good definition of, of worldliness from David Wells. He says this. Now, this follow this. This is really good. Worldliness is that system of values in any given age which has at its center our fallen human perspective which displaces God and his truth from the world. And here's the kicker line. Which makes sin look normal and righteousness seem strange. As who would have thought 15, 20, 10, no, 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 let's make it five years ago. Who would have ever thought that there would be a cultural wholesale shift to the degree that now says that not just homosexual behavior, but in fact homosexual marriage, okay, is the new civil rights issue. Unthinkable, even five, ten years ago culturally now it is the most normal thing in the world in fact it's a moral imperative that we all have to accept and to be someone who affirms heterosexual marriage and heterosexual marriage only seems in our culture what very strange see that's what worldliness is it makes the things of god seem strange and the things not of God seem normal. Now bring this closer to home. What's the connection between conflict and worldliness and being a friend of the world? And it's very simple, self. Self. Because where conflict is present, make no mistake, worldliness is sure to follow. You see the progression James is making? He says, see, conflict is born out of your heart. 
Born, conflict is born out of your desires and your passions that wage war within you. And then as that corruption takes root, it spreads like gangrene into the external relationships of your life. And like any disease, any cancer, ultimately, it cannot be contained. That's what disease does. It spreads and it corrupts. And James is really just saying this, Four Oaks, our level of relational conflict in our lives is a window into our hearts, and it says something about where we are with God. What does the level of conflict in your life say about your relational stance with Jesus Christ? A couple passages for us to think about. Matthew 5, 9. Blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be called sons of God. Are you contentious? Are you always looking for a fight? Do you never apologize? Do you never seek out your brother when you know you've sinned against him? Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers, for they, they shall be called sons of God. Matthew 6, 14 through 15. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Let me say that, let me put this another way, Four Oaks. Ongoing, unresolved, chronic conflict across all spheres of our lives may be an indicator, is an indicator of something much more serious going on in our souls. And it's only a matter of time before it shows up in the rest of our life in the form of worldliness. Do you see why this is so important to understand? Do you see why this is even more important than three simple steps to resolve your conflict? Let me put it this way. Having conflict in our lives doesn't imperil our souls and relationships with God. If that were the case, we would all be done. But having unchecked conflict may say something about your heart. So what does level of conflict in your life say about what you really want in life? What does level of conflict in your life indicate about my heart and your heart? Because internal conflicts manifest themselves in external problems that have eternal consequences, and we would be amiss if we did not close with this. All of those things, Four Oaks, need a gospel solution. I don't care what level of conflict in your life is right now. James offers this word for every one of us. This is going to be a great call for us to the table this morning. Listen to what he says in the next set of verses, he, he, in verse 5. He says, but he gives more grace. He gives more grace. Pastor Paul, my life is is." is is full of conflict. It is, it is chock full. My kids, my spouse, my coworkers, I'm contentious, I'm angry, I'm... He gives more grace. And there's something that James says here in the rest of these next three, three verses that sound dark, that sound grim, but are actually the most hopeful thing that we could say this morning. He says, therefore it says... God opposes the proud. But listen, he gives grace to the humble. 
Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and what? He will exalt you. He will give you grace. He will exalt you. Guys, it's very hard to ask those tough, penetrating questions. What is it that I want? How is it that the external problems in my life are really being fueled by the passions that are waging war with me? It's very hard to say, what, what does the level of worldliness in my life say about my internal conflict? Because it's, conflict can't be contained. It always spreads. Wherever you wind up as you answer those questions, God calls us all to the same place this morning as we come to the table. He gives more grace. Draw near to God. He will draw near to you. Purify your hearts. Confess your sin. Draw near to Christ. He will forgive you. He is the peacemaker. For folks, God has made peace with us through his son, Jesus Christ. He died for people like you and me who screw up our relationships. He died for people who've been racked with internal wars and external passions in our souls. He died for people in conflict. Where's God this morning been speaking to you about the conflicts in your life?